Well, this, this morning, uh, we not only have the special occasion of a deacon installation, uh, but we also have the special occasion of a baptism. And uh, I have selected a passage for today that is related to that. But before we get into that, uh, children ages 2 through 6, uh, if your parents want you to go to the children's church, uh, children ages 2 through 6 can go to the children's church during the sermon hour, uh, which is in a classroom uh, next to the library. And as they go, I would encourage you to turn in the Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. We're going to look this morning at verses 26 through 40. If you're using one of the church Bibles, our text can be found on page 917. I do encourage you to take out the outline that's provided in the bulletin uh, to take notes on there. Uh, We usually listen better and glean more if we take notes. And then on the back side, you will find it out. Or I'm sorry, you will find questions, discussion questions. I encourage you to use those later on today, possibly with others. Uh, because we will be baptizing, I have chosen as my text this passage in the book of Acts. It is so easy to get caught up in various things and lose sight of God's plan. Lose sight of God's purpose. The book of Acts brings us face to face with God's plan, with God's purpose. Something that we often need to be reminded of. Acts is the second of two volumes of history written by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Together, these two volumes give a sweeping history of the founding of Christianity showing Christianity to be the one true religion. The first volume, which we call the Gospel of Luke, emphasizes how Jesus fulfilled God's plan of providing salvation for sinners through His atoning death. And the second volume, the book of Acts, emphasizes God's plan to bring the salvation to the ends of the earth through the ongoing witness of the church. The theme verse of the book of Acts is chapter 1, verse 8, which I would like you to take a look at. So hold on to our text and turn back to the first chapter of Acts and look at verse 8. These are words that the Lord Jesus spoke just before He ascended into heaven. He speaks these words to His disciples, whom He has gathered together to witness His ascension. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read Jesus' words, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This lays out for us what this book is all about. In chapter 2, the ascended Christ pours out the Holy Spirit, Uh, who is promised here in chapter 1, verse 8. The ascended Christ pours out the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 to indwell and to empower Christ's disciples in the mission that Christ has given. And throughout the rest of the book, we see Spirit-indwelt disciples of Christ serving as Christ's witnesses going all the way towards the ends of the earth. It starts at Jerusalem, as Jesus said, It extends through Judea and Samaria towards the ends of the earth. And this is still going on today. Um, Until Jesus comes again, we are to be Christ's witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, while many passages in the book of Acts speak of Christ's apostles preaching to groups of people and report on on, on, many people uh, hearing the gospel and believing the gospel and being saved... Our text zooms in on an individual who hears the good news of Jesus and is converted. Have you ever, in using Google Maps, zoomed in on that map? You you can start with Google Maps looking at the whole world. But then you can zoom in further and further until you can even see a car parked in your driveway. Or a car parked on your street because you've zoomed all the way in. 
In Acts, Luke has been focused more on the big picture of the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond. But in our text, he zooms in so that we can see up close and personal what the unfolding of God's plan involves. Our text is the first example in the book of a Gentile believing in Christ. It is also the the first example in the book of one-to-one evangelism and the first example in the book of an individual's conversion. Many people have been converted in Acts prior to this, but this is the first example of an individual's conversion. We get to see this up close and personal. God's plan includes the conversions of a multitude of people whom God has chosen from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And in our text, we are shown one of these conversions that occurred during the founding of the church. As we study this text, we have to ask ourselves, as Christ's disciples, is the conversion of souls one of our great concerns? The conversion of souls is at the heart of God's plan that He's unfolding in the world. That's clear in the book of Acts. Is it one of your great concerns? Is it one of my great concerns? Are we concerned about the things of God's great plan and purpose? Our text is the record of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. It is a glorious passage, a very memorable passage. So I'm going to read to us now. Please stand in honor of the Word of God as I read Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, And he is reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through... He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Let us pray for God's help as we look at this passage together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that we have just read. We ask you, Father, to open up your word uh, to our hearts and minds. We pray, Father, that that you would enable us uh, to understand the meaning of this passage and its application to our lives. We pray that that you would grow us in our faith in Christ, our love for Him, and our service to Him through the study of your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we have three main sections. First of all, uh, the, the, the first section could be titled, Sent with the Good News about Jesus. The second section, proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And the third section, profession of faith in 
Jesus. First of all, sent with the good news about Jesus. Look closely with me at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip, who is mentioned here, who is sent uh, by the, this angel of the Lord, Philip was one of the seven men that we read of in chapter 6, who were chosen by the church to, to lead the church in caring for the widows. Uh, we read in chapter 6 that he was full of the Spirit, he was of good repute, and so forth. Later on in chapter 8, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, proclaiming Christ there in Samaria to the various villages. And we, we read that Philip saw a good number of conversions in Samaria. And now in our text, the Lord sends Philip to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a road that intersects in Gaza with a larger road that goes down to North Africa. The Lord's purpose, and this becomes clear as the passage continues. Look at verse 27. And he, that is Philip, rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So the Lord sends Philip to this man to whom we are introduced. And we're told that this man is an Ethiopian. Uh, Ethiopia at that time was a kingdom south of Egypt, along the Nile River, in what today we call Sudan. The Old Testament called this place Ethiopia Cush. This kingdom of Ethiopia was very wealthy. This man is an Ethiopian, and we're also told that he is a eunuch. Uh, in other words, a surgery had been performed on him that permanently removed his ability to bring children into the world, that permanently removed his bodily drive to do so. Now, it was common for court officials of kings and queens to be eunuchs, for they were found to be particularly trustworthy and loyal to their ruler. Though eunuchs would never be able to have a family because of that operation, eunuchs who served as court officials received wealth, security, and a status among the elite. We're told specifically that this man is a court official of the queen and is in charge of all her treasure. So she is the equivalent to our secretary of the treasury. And this man is a high-ranking powerful government official. And he certainly would have had a retinue of servants with him. He's not all by himself in this chariot. He has servants who have come with him. We're told that he has come to Jerusalem to worship. Possibly at the time of one of the great Jewish feasts, like the Passover, when both Jews and God-fearers uh, from all over the world uh, would come to Jerusalem uh, to worship the Lord. This would indicate that he is a Gentile God-fearer. He has not been converted to become a Jew. He is a Gentile, but he believes in the God of the Jews. He believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he seeks to worship that one true God. Now, we read here that he is returning to Ethiopia, seated in his chariot, reading what? The prophet Isaiah. He probably would be reading the Greek translation uh, of the prophet Isaiah. Now, because the scriptures were copied by hand, this is very unusual, that there is an individual who has his own personal copy of part of the scriptures. You know, synagogue, Jewish synagogues uh, would have copies of the Old Testament scriptures, but it was rare that an individual would have their own personal copy. Yeah, this man must have paid a large amount of money uh, to, to purchase this copy of the book of Isaiah. A painstaking process was gone through to copy every single letter correctly. That took time. 
Therefore, it was costly, and not many people had them. But this man, as the Holy Spirit has prepared him to hear the good news of Jesus, this man has a copy of the prophet Isaiah, and this is exactly what he is reading at this point. This is not a coincidence. There are no coincidences in a world over which God is sovereign. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, preparing this Ethiopian eunuch to hear, understand, and believe the gospel of Christ. And for this purpose, the Lord sends Philip to this man. Let's continue in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. You see, people typically would read out loud. Even if they were not reading to another person, people typically would read out loud in that day. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is how the Holy Spirit prepares for the Ethiopian to hear the good news of Jesus. That's the first section. In the next section, we see proclamation of the good news about Jesus. Proclamation of the good news about Jesus. Let's continue in verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. In God's providence, the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah chapter 53. The fullest prophecy of Christ's death and resurrection found in the Old Testament. This chapter in Isaiah speaks of the coming Christ as the Lord's servant. This chapter foretells Christ's atoning work at the cross. And this chapter uses the past tense uh, frequently to communicate the certainty of these things. Now, Isaiah 53 is written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. But it's prophesying the atoning work of Christ that would take place 700 years later. And it's prophesying in a way that communicates the certainty that these things will come to pass. Now, there are 12 verses in what we call Isaiah 53... And almost every one is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, showing how foundational this chapter is. Our text that I just read quotes verse 7b and verse 8a in Isaiah 53. Now I want you to look in our text in Acts at verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. A prophecy that Christ would be killed, that, he would, that when he would be killed, he would not resist nor revile. That he would go to his death like a meek, submissive lamb. And then look at verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Prophesying that Christ would be unjustly punished in a very humiliating way. And that the punishment inflicted on him would be death. Continue at verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Many of the Jews um, who did not yet believe in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, they, 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 they discussed, who, who does this refer to? And there was no conclusive, strong opinion among the Jews um, about it. 
This eunuch doesn't understand the passage. And he asks Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He told him the good news about Jesus, starting with this passage. Elsewhere in the Bible, this good news about Jesus is called the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. Here, Philip speaks the gospel, the good news about Jesus, starting with this passage. Understand that the greatest need of each person in this world is to be saved from their sins. But the Bible is clear that no one can save themselves and that no one deserves salvation. Rather than God's favor, we deserve God's judgment, His eternal judgment for our sin against Him. The Bible teaches that salvation is entirely of God and entirely of His grace. And that salvation is received through believing the good news about Jesus. The good news that Philip proclaims here to the Ethiopian. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, we read, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel and he called upon all people to repent and believe in the gospel, to believe the good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, the, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul summarized the good news about Jesus, and I want us to see that summary. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, but I also received that. And now he's going to give us a very concise summary of the gospel. He has just said that those he's writing to have, um, have heard the preaching of the gospel, that Paul preached the gospel to them. They received it. Uh, they stand in the gospel. Uh, they are being saved by the gospel provided they hold fast to it, and now he gives a summary, a very concise one, of the gospel. So verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So as was prophesied in the Old Testament, Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was buried signifies he really was dead. There were a lot of people who wanted to say, well, he didn't really die, because they wanted to discredit the, re the resurrection. He was buried. He was clearly dead. Verse 4 goes on, and that he was raised on the third day in, cord in accordance with the Scriptures. A message about Christ that does not include the resurrection is not the Gospel. At the core of the Gospel, you have Christ's death for our sins and His resurrection. If Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. So, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The appearances indicated he really was raised from the dead. Witnesses saw the resurrected Christ. They touched the resurrected Christ. They, they, they saw the nail prints in his resurrected body. They saw him eat fish. They knew this is not a spirit. This is Jesus Christ bodily raised from the dead. And this is the concise summary of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. 
He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to witnesses. Now we you can turn back to Acts 8. We're told in Acts 8 that beginning with the Isaiah passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. What a great starting point, Isaiah 53. He started there. Now, I want you to see some of the other verses in Isaiah that Philip likely explained. So actually turn with me back to Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah 52 and 53. The chapter divisions in our Bibles are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were divided by man. In this case, everything that is said in Isaiah 53 is tightly connected with the end of chapter 52. Really, the section begins in chapter 52, verse 13. And I want you to look with me at 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant, so that's the Lord's servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Here, the coming Christ is referred to by God as his servant, as God's servant, the Lord's servant. And it says that the Lord's servant is worthy of being highly exalted. But as we will see, he was not exalted by men. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So he came in a humble state. He came as a, as a servant. He came veiling his glory in order to do the will of the Lord. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not prophesying that Christ would be rejected to the point of being killed. Verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken by, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Prophesying that his death would be a substitutionary death. He would die for the sins of his people. He would be punished for our transgressions. That we would be healed of sin and given peace with God. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see here that the Lord would lay our iniquity on Him, that that this would ultimately be the Lord's doing. We also see here in verse 6 that we need this salvation because each of us has turned away from God's law and gone our own way like a wandering sheep. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no sin in his actions. There was no sin in his speech. Christ's death amounted to the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he will be killed, yet afterwards, after his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He will be brought back to life. He shall prolong his days. He shall be brought back from the dead. He shall be raised from the dead. He would die. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then he would be raised. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We see here that those who receive the benefits of Christ's death are accounted righteous by God's grace. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is not promising that he's going to change your character to make you righteous in your behavior, though that's promised elsewhere, that God brings about in sanctification and glorification. But here, the prophecy is that Christ would make many to be accounted righteous who are not righteous. That the godly one would justify the ungodly. The righteous one would justify the, the unrighteous. That the righteousness of Christ would be credited to the account of the one who receives the benefit of Christ's death. That this righteousness would be credited to our account. It's an accounting term, accounted righteous. We are not righteous, but by grace we are counted righteous in God's sight. We are given the gift of a right standing with God. Here in Isaiah 53, this prophecy of Christ's death, it tells us the purpose of Christ's death. He would die in order to, that many would be accounted righteous. As Christ took our sins upon himself, and he gives his righteousness to, to the one who believes in him. Go on to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Prophesying that Christ would be rewarded and that he would share his reward with those whom he accounts righteous. Having borne the sins of his people, we're told that he continually makes intercession for them. Now come back to Acts chapter 8. Philip, we're told, explained this passage to the Ethiopian and its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. Philip explained that this is a prophecy of the coming Christ, and it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He healed lepers. He brought the dead back to life. And then He laid down His life at the cross. He was crucified. He willingly went to that cross, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Upon that cross, he, he bore the sins of His people. He bore their guilt. He paid for their sin in full at the cross. He was buried. And He was raised on the third day. And He appeared to witnesses after being raised. He told the good news about Jesus starting with this passage. He proclaimed the apostolic message. The message of Christ. Now, I want you to observe here in Acts chapter 8, in verse 35, that the good news is about Jesus. 
He proclaimed the good news about Jesus. The good news about who Jesus is as both holy God and perfect man united in one person. About what Jesus has done to save sinners. And about how Jesus rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. We have good news about a person. And the historical events of Christ fulfilling God's purpose to redeem sinners. What glorious news this is. This good news about Jesus. And this news about Jesus is only found in one place. The scriptures. What the Ethiopian was reading. The scriptures. What Philip helped him to understand. The scriptures. You will never find what you need to know for salvation in nature. Nature declares the existence of God, the glory of God, but you will not find in nature what you need to know for salvation. You will never find what you need to know for salvation in yourself. A lot of people in this world look into themselves to find the answers to life. You will never find what you need to know for salvation in yourself. You will never find what you need to know for salvation in philosophy. You will never find what you need to know for salvation in any other place except the Scriptures. God's special revelation to us. God's written revelation. To be saved, a person must learn the teaching of the Bible. And the good news about Jesus is at the heart of the Bible. This good news is for us to believe. Believing the good news goes hand in hand of Repenting of our sin and believing in the Jesus of the gospel. Through such faith, a person is saved by God's grace. Now this sets biblical Christianity apart from all other religions. All other religions give you something to do in order to be a good person. Or something to do in order to become right with God. Or to maintain a right standing with God. But biblical Christianity is the good news of what God has done to reconcile sinners to Himself and bring them into right relationship with Him. And it is for us to believe that good news. It is through faith that we are saved by God's grace and made right with Him. So we have the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. In our last section, we have profession of faith in Jesus. Profession of faith in Jesus. Look with me in Acts 8 at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now that Philip, I'm sorry, that the Ethiopian would ask Philip, Um, about being baptized, when he sees water, sufficient water for being baptized, this implies that Philip had taught this man that after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, one is to be baptized. What does this word baptized mean? It means literally to dip or to immerse. Understand that biblical baptism is not by sprinkling, but it is by immersion. We'll see in our text that the The Ethiopian, uh, he has seen a body of water. He sees it as a place where he can be baptized. Philip and the Ethiopian go into the water. He's baptized, he's immersed, he's dipped. And then they come up out of the water. Baptized means to dip, to immerse. This is the mode of baptism. The Lord Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, that his disciples be baptized. Matthew 28 gives us Christ's great commission, in which he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. So after, by God's grace, a person becomes a disciple of Christ, they are to be baptized and they are to be taught to observe all all that Christ has commanded. Christ's disciples are to be baptized as a public identification 
with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Christ's disciples are to be baptized as a public confession of faith in Jesus as one's Lord and Savior. Baptism symbolizes the cleansing from sin that we have received through faith in Christ. And it symbolizes that through faith, we have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And what a wonderful picture being immersed under the water and being brought up out of the water is of that union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism does not save. There are some people today uh, who believe that their baptism saved them. But baptism does not save. Rather, those who have been saved through faith are to then be baptized as an act of obedience to Christ. Baptism is only for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not for babies. Babies can't believe. Babies can't understand the gospel. Baptism is not for babies. Baptism is not for people trying to work their way into heaven. Baptism is for those who have renounced self-righteousness, for those who have acknowledged their sinfulness, for those who have recognized their inability to make themselves right with God and have laid hold of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Baptism is not for those who are trying to add Christ to their life, but it's for those who have been born again and converted unto Jesus Christ as their only Savior and their only Lord. The good news declares Jesus to be the only Savior and to be the Lord of all. Believing the gospel includes embracing Him as such and forsaking all other supposed Saviors and Lords. Baptism is a public identification with Jesus as one's only Savior and Lord. In our text, the Ethiopian eunuch's baptism would have been done in the presence of his whole entourage. He gives a command for the chariot to stop. He has a servant who's driving that chariot. And a man of this standing in the government would certainly have a whole entourage with him. He's baptized in the presence of his entourage. Jesus does not call people unto himself in order that they would be his secret disciples, but that they, that they would be his disciples sincerely, publicly, without shame, whatever the cost may be. Let's continue in verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. You see here that after Philip baptized this man, the Holy Spirit miraculously carried Philip away. He vanished from the sight of the Ethiopian and the onlookers which was a miraculous sign that confirmed to everyone who saw that Philip was indeed God's spokesman. Now where did the Holy Spirit take Philip? Look at verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus. The Old Testament name for Azotus was Ashdod. Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip had preached the good news about Jesus to the Ethiopian, and after he's taken away, he continues preaching the good news about Jesus. Now, meanwhile, verse 39 says the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Joy is part of the fruit of salvation, joy is a mark of being saved. How can you not rejoice when God saves you from your sin and gives you the free gift of eternal life? He has taken away all your guilt. The guilt of all your sin, past, present, and even future, He has taken away. He has freed you from your sins. You were a slave to sin, but He has now freed you from your sins. He has cleansed you. He has made you new. He has made you right with Him. He's given you this righteous standing with Him that cannot be improved upon. He's brought you into relationship with Himself. You've been brought into relationship with the God of the universe. He has joined you to Christ. 
He has brought you to know the great grace, mercy, and love that He has lavished upon you. How can you not rejoice? My friend, let me ask you, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged and bowed before Him as Lord of all? As the Lord of your life? Have you turned from your self-righteousness and sin to Jesus Christ, trusting Him as your one and only Savior, as opposed to trusting in your own works, trusting in your own goodness? Have you turned from your self-righteousness and sin to Jesus Christ, trusting Him as your one and only Savior? If not, I implore you to come to Jesus Christ right now in repentance of sin and faith, that you would be saved, that you would receive His gift of eternal life. Jesus Christ said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the bread of life. He's the light of life. He's the door of the sheep. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So come to Him in repentance of sin, in faith, that you would be saved. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me ask you, have you been baptized? in obedience to Christ. What we have here in our text is is showing us uh, Christ's intention. Christ's intention that everyone who believes in Him would then be baptized. Have you been baptized in obedience to Christ? If If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you've not been baptized and are interested in being baptized, please speak with me or one of the other elders after our service, about being baptized. Are you rejoicing in your Savior as the Ethiopian did? The Ethiopian is an example for us in going away rejoicing. And I'm sure that when you were saved, you rejoiced. Or when you were given assurance of salvation, you rejoiced. But it's very easy for that joy to slowly diminish. Today, when we are baptizing individuals, let us remember the joy of our salvation. Let's remember the the, the joy that we had when we were saved. And let us seek to continue in that joy. Because Jesus Christ is no less of a Savior for us today as He was back then. Our salvation is no smaller today than it was back then. Let us continue to rejoice in our Savior. Let me also ask, are you, brothers and sisters, telling other people the good news about Jesus as Philip did? Philip is, in the context of the book of Acts, an example for us. 
in telling the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch. He's an example for us of personal evangelism. Are you telling other people the good news about Jesus as Philip did? The early church father Irenaeus wrote that the Ethiopian eunuch became a missionary among his own people. And that is what the gospel makes us. The gospel makes us Christ's witnesses wherever Christ sends us. Wherever Christ has us, the gospel makes us his witnesses. In a few minutes, several individuals will share their testimonies with you of Christ's saving work in their lives. They will be baptized as a public profession of their faith in Christ. And this is all because of Christ and the good news about Him. The good news that the Ethiopian read in Isaiah 53. The good news that Philip shared with the Ethiopian. The good news of Christ's death for our sins and His resurrection for our justification. Praise the Savior, ye who know Him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news about Jesus. What we read in Isaiah 53 and its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. We thank You, Father, for the New Testament's declaration of the Gospel. Lord, we thank You that salvation is not by works. Uh, Apart from salvation, we are dead in trespasses and sins, unable to do anything uh, to, to reach out to You to save ourselves. If salvation was of us, we would be utterly lost in an unsaved condition. But we thank You, Father, that with You there is salvation, that salvation is by Your grace, that rather than being achieved through works, it's received through faith in the One who accomplished our salvation. Oh Lord, may we walk daily um, in the joy of knowing that our sins have been forgiven, for Christ bore those sins upon the cross. May we walk daily in the joy of knowing that we, by Your grace, have been made right with You. May we walk in the joy of knowing Jesus as our Savior. And when we know Jesus as our Savior, we want to obey Him as Lord. We know He is Lord. He's been raised on the third day in an exalted state. He's been exalted to Your right hand as Lord of all. And we want to obey and serve our Redeemer. We ask You, Father, to enable us to share the good news boldly, without shame, uh, to others. And Lord, we ask that You would be glorified in today's baptisms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.